Please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 3. We begin this morning with reading Psalm 38, and now we'll turn back toward the beginning of the Bible songbook and spend time looking at Psalm 3. This is the first psalm that is explicitly in the title attributed to David. In the title, we're also told that he wrote this psalm when he fled from, an, from his own son who was trying to kill him and take over the kingdom. This is David crying out to the Lord in the midst of deep trouble and distress. In this psalm, we see what happens, what comes out of a righteous man when he is squeezed. It's the reflex of David's heart to call out to the Lord. Like when you get hit in the knee with that little hammer, your leg kicks before you know what happened. In the same way, this psalm is what came out of David in the middle of the battle before he had a chance to sit back and reflect. We have all snapped under pressure and stress and said something, something that we regret after time has passed and we have some perspective. David's response to this betrayal does not come naturally. It only comes from living a lifetime of living faith in the living God. Psalm 3, hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves all around me, against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Pray with me. Our Father, we come before you this morning submitting ourselves to your word. Your inerrant, inspired word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that you would open and enlighten our hearts, that we might clearly and rightly understand. We know that on our own, we can do nothing that is of any spiritual good. We humbly ask that you would, through your word, by your spirit, because of your Son, guide us into all the truth. That you would transform us, conform us to the image of your Son to be pleasing to you that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully pleasing to him. Let our hearts be like good ground. Help us to hear your word with an honest and good heart. Enable us to understand it and keep it and bear fruit with patience for your glory and our everlasting benefit. I pray for myself that you would choose my words for me, that your will be done and that all I would say is pleasing in your sight for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It is our tendency to make things all about us. It certainly is for me. As I begin preparing for this sermon, this is just what I did. I tried to find myself in the psalm. I kept putting myself in the place of David and then trying to interpret it from there. And as I did, I found it was really tough to get my thoughts to fall in line. I had fallen into a self-centered trap and couldn't even see it. 
It seemed that every road I tried led to a dead end. It didn't matter what angle I looked at this psalm, I couldn't see my way through. Every start I made was like trying to pound a square peg in a round hole. It was frustrating. Until all, I want, all at once I realized that I was looking at the text all wrong. It wasn't about me. It's not about you. Though we are welcome to identify with David in this psalm, we can even be deeply blessed to pray the psalms, all of them, to make their words our words as we cry out to the Lord in our pain and our distress, even in our joy. And I would really encourage you to do that. Praying the psalms is one of the most fruitful and helpful ways to pray. When we do, when we pray the psalms, we pray the Lord's words back to Him. But we are not the focus of the Bible. It is not to be looked through a lens of where do I fit. And when the Lord, by His grace, reminded me of this, that I am not the hero, that even David, though he is the main character in this psalm, is not the ultimate hero of the story. God is the hero. He is the main actor. When I realized this, I began to realize again that David doesn't point toward me. Instead, David points to Christ, the true and better David. That's when the pieces started falling into place. It was like somebody turned on the defroster and the windshield suddenly cleared and I could see. And I hope by God's grace to do the same for you this morning. What we see here in Psalm 3 is David in deep distress. But in the midst of this deep trouble, a real and present danger, we also see David's rock-solid trust in God right in the middle of this mess. This is not David looking back after having been brought through the danger safe and sound and trusting that God was there. No, this is, in this psalm, we see what true faith looks like in the midst of all kinds of trouble. David was running for his life from his own son. This wasn't a stranger that wanted him dead and to take his place. It wasn't an advisor. It wasn't a friend. It was a son, a son whom David deeply loved. Absalom was one of David's oldest sons, and with flattery and deceit, he stole the hearts of the people. And when he thought the time was right, he proclaimed himself king and tried to take over. David was taken completely by surprise and had to skedaddle with very little time to prepare. And if that wasn't bad enough, as he was running, David was loudly and openly cursed by Shimei, someone loyal to the old king Saul. In 2 Samuel verses 16, uh, chapter 16, we see um, Shimei crying out, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. In other words, you had this coming, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. As you can see, this psalm is not about some vague problem or small disappointment, but a very specific, life-threatening danger facing David on a specific day. Let's look to verses 1 and 2, and as we do, let me mention my headings, the hooks to hang our thoughts on as we work through this psalm. As with most psalms, this one breaks down basically into the stanzas we see in our Bibles. In verses 1, 1 and 2, we see David's cry. In verses 3 and 4, we see David's trust. In verses 5 and 6, we see David's peace. And in the last two verses, we see the basis for David's confidence. Verses 1 and 2. 
O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David is in trouble. And the first words out of his mouth are, O Lord. He takes his trouble directly and without delay to the Lord. O Lord, David says, there are a lot of bad guys after me. And there's a lot more out there and more on the way. Many are rising against me. This is not good. And I am really in no position to do anything about it. This is the reflex of his heart, his gut instinct, to take his trouble directly and without delay to the Lord. Notice David does not demand that the Lord do something. As though David was the one giving orders. As though it were David's right to be saved from this situation. As though David were angry with the Lord for bringing him into this situation. No, David knew and he recognized, even in the beginning of this desperate prayer, that God was God and David was not. I think too many times we get this exactly backwards, especially in this year of insanity that is 2020. We, and, I, and by we, I mean the church in the West, especially in America, and including us right here and now, are offended by the very thought that God would bring us into difficulty and not immediately bring us out. God promises his people security in eternity, not a trouble-free life. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus promised his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. But he didn't stop there. He also said, take heart, I have overcome the world. That doesn't mean we won't have trouble, but it does mean that the trouble won't be out of his control. I think it's easy to be appalled by the idea that God would discipline his people or even allow them to be uncomfortable. We get all out of sorts when our plans are interrupted. We're up in arms when non-Christians act like non-Christians, doing and loving things that are evil and attacking and hating what is good. God is sovereign. That means he can do what he wants, when he wants, and he doesn't have to ask anyone for permission to do it. He did not ask our permission for anything that has happened in this year of riots and pandemic. Instead of complaining, which is really grumbling, and grumbling is a sin to be repented of, we should cry out to the Lord, telling him of our trouble and trusting him to do as he sees fit. David's enemies were saying, there is no salvation for him to be found in God. The cries of his enemies must have rung in David's ears. He knew that he was guilty of great sin as are we. We deserve to be crushed. We, us and David together, do nothing and could do nothing to earn or deserve to be saved. We, us and David together, are saved by grace through faith. It is nothing we have done and only what God has done. God secures salvation and sustains salvation. If God had truly forsaken David, as his enemies claimed, all hope would be lost. But instead of falling into despair, David trusted his way through. God had sustained him this far and promised to continue to do so. And so David trusted. He trusted much in the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would hundreds of years later when they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar for not bowing to his golden image. In Daniel 3, we read, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, 
Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Here they declared their allegiance, come what may. Throw us into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar. Do your worst. God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we will serve him still. Let that be our cry in the face of opposition, in the face of everything we find ourselves into, in, er, we've, in, in the face of everything we find ourselves in. Let that be our answer to those who will not bend the knee to Christ and hate those who do. We will serve the Lord and him alone. This is faith in action, to trust the sovereignty of, and goodness of God even in the midst of trouble. Because our Savior was not rescued when his enemies multiplied, we know that we are saved in, a, in the way that matters most. In Christ's non-deliverance from the cross, he crushed his and our enemies. Christ was forsaken, though he did in no way deserve it. He was forsaken in our place. He bore the wrath of God against sin that we deserve, that David deserved. Jesus was deserted by his Father so that David and all of God's people can declare along with him his trust. Verse 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried, cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David turns his eyes from his enemies to God. And as he does, he turns from distress to peace. Like Peter walking on the water in reverse, he turns his eyes from the waves to his deliverer and is given peace. David has temporarily lost his kingdom. His world is in an uproar. His own flesh and blood is hunting him down. There's no other way for rebellion to work than to kill the old king. So Absalom is intent on killing him. Yet as he turns to God, David knows that the Lord himself is a shield around him, an all-powerful protection that cannot be penetrated. It surrounds him entirely. When we as believers look too long at our enemies, the size and strength of what stands before us grows in size. It, it, it seems overwhelming. But when we turn our eyes and our thoughts to God as he is, all of a sudden, when we see him seen in his true light as the all-knowing, all-powerful, good and righteous creator, king of all the universe, our enemies are suddenly shrunk to their proper size, to manageable proportions. That doesn't mean that they're less real or less dangerous, but it does mean they are no longer the defining factor. Not only was God a shield about David, David calls him his glory, the lifter of his head. David sees God as more valuable than the kingdom he just lost. David finds his identity, his significance, his honor in the Lord and not in his own strength or status. Do we do that? Do we really? Do we so identify ourselves as the people of God that all else can be taken from us? and the world set against us, and we can still say God is our glory, the lifter of our head. I pray that this is the case for me. I pray that this is the same for you, that even when all else is stripped away, we will say, I serve him still. He is my glory. David is confident 
Again, in verse 4, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David's confidence comes from the promises of God, not because he thinks, I've been pretty good. God owes me one. No, David knows that he is a sinner, but God has promised him grace. And David trusts in this promise. No, he trusts in the God who made the promise. This is the God who answers prayer. When we feel at our lowest, when we feel abandoned and set against, we can draw comfort from this assurance that God answers the prayers of his people. Not because we are so great, but because Jesus is so great. We can rest in the knowledge that we will never be abandoned by him whom God forsook on the cross as he bore our sins. God always answers, though not always at once and not always as we wish. Spurgeon wrote, We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. God hears our prayers, and he answers our prayers according to his will, which is always the best thing. David knew this, and as the next two verses show us, it gave him peace. Verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. How many times have you lost a night's sleep worrying about something you have absolutely no control over? How many times have you worn a hole in the rug of your mind, pacing back and forth with thoughts about your troubles? I've done this way, often, way more often than I'd like to admit. I've dwelt on, tr- on the trouble before me. I've worried myself sick and driven my wife nuts over things way smaller than an army hunting me down to kill me. It could be the same for you. Almost surely there is no military battle waiting for you outside your door in the morning when you leave. Although many of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, this is just the case. Just this year in Nigeria, in Africa, Christians have been killed by the thousands by Muslim raiders. Churches have been burned. Houses have been pulled down and villages wiped out. We might not be facing that, but we could be facing a battle just the same. It could be at work where everyone is looking out for number one, stomping on anyone that is in their way. Everyone is trying to defeat everyone else. Weapons, the weapons aren't guns and knives, but the conditions are still cutthroat. People fight with rumors and lying and gossip and misrepresentation, and even with violence and bribes or stealing. We may not have thousands of enemies camped around us as David had, but how many enemies does it take to make our lives miserable? One determined foe will do just fine. Again, your son may not be out to actually kill you, but your children might have betrayed you or what you stand for, or other family has abandoned you or cast you out and turned their back on you. Can we say with David, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me? His security was not tied to his circumstances. David's confidence was not in his own ability to solve his problems, but in the Lord. David's faith enabled him to lie down. Anxiety should have kept him up. It should have kept him pacing. 
should have kept him on tiptoe, waiting for a branch to crack. Or at the very least, it should have kept him tossing and turning. Yet he was able to sleep and sleep in the midst of trouble, surrounded by foes. This was the sleep of holy confidence that God would do what is best. David did not presume on the Lord as though he deserved to be delivered. Neither did he stick his head in the sand and pretend like nothing was wrong. But he did trust in the Lord, and this trust allowed him to close his eyes and sleep in the midst of what had to be an incredibly hard situation. This is the peace of the gospel. And, and the sense of love that God, of God in the soul that no matter the difficulties, no matter the temptations, no matter the troubles, the servant of God is able to cheerfully and boldly look his enemy in the face and then rest in the arms of God. Because the Lord sustains him. It is not in ourselves that we, the servants of God, trust. We don't lay down and sleep and get up in our own strength, but only in as much as the Lord allows us to do. Again, Spurgeon says, True grace may be shot at, but it can never be shot through. Grace puts the soul into Christ, and there it is safe. Safe as the bee in the hive, or as the dove in the ark. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Which is why David could look at his situation realistically. There were thousands of people set against him. He was surrounded. And he didn't need to pretend that it wasn't so. He didn't need to make believe that this really isn't so bad. No, David's faith allowed him to look out with eyes wide open and still say, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. To trust in God only when things look, look to be going well and the sun is shining and there's puppy dogs and rainbows and, and all kinds of fun things. This is to believe only what we see, which is to say not very much faith at all. Let us follow the example of David here and seek that unreservedness of faith which will enable us to trust in God, come what will, and say, as he said, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves about me all around. This is true for all of God's people. And by that, by that I mean all who have repented of their sin and trusted in his Son. To paraphrase Calvin, God's power is infinite. So the people of God should conclude that his power is invincible against everything the world can throw against it. Unless we acknowledge this, we will never have any kind of courage. Let us remember that when we're in danger, that whatever terrors are in our way, if they are directed against God, they are of little or no account. David then, after he told the Lord of his trouble, trusting the Lord to deliver him as he saw fit, which led to peace of heart that allowed him to sleep in the midst of it all, after this, David asked the Lord to act on his behalf. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David is asking the Lord to do just what he has done for him in the past. Save him from the trouble he is in. He gets specific, for you strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. If you'll indulge me to quote Spurgeon one more time, he said that they, that David's enemies had spoken against him, 
God, therefore, has smitten them on the cheekbone. They seemed as if they would devour him with their mouths. God hath then broken their teeth. And let them say what they will, their toothless jaws shall not be able to devour him. Rejoice, O believer, thou hast to do with a dragon whose head is broken, and with enemies whose teeth are dashed from their jaws. He will not be able to gum you to death. Now on to the final verse, verse 8. And this is the reason, the basis for all of the confidence that David had. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David ends his psalm with the declaration that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his to give. It is his to defend. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his to bless. It is his. All of it. It, salvation, is his. He will save whom he wills, when he wills, for his glory. And nothing can stand against it. This was true for David as he ran from his son, and it is true for us now. It is not our right to be saved from the troubles we encounter, both the ones that are our fault and the ones that are not. To be saved is all of grace, both the eternal salvation of our soul and the salvation that brings us out of the scrap we are in now. In the year 2020, it has been God's mercy to show us our desperate need of Him. It has been a kindness to show us that we are helpless on our own and have no hope of saving ourselves, that we might turn from our sins, that we would repent and turn to Him as our only hope of salvation. This includes us as individuals and us as a country and us as a world. We are in a season of especially high rebellion against the God of all the universe. And in the midst of it, God ordained a tiny microbe to turn the world on its head. And what's fallen out of our pockets as we hang from our ankles getting shaken is not pretty. When the pressure builds, what's actually on the inside comes out. In our garden this year, for the first time, we've really managed to grow more than weeds and rocks. <laughs> we've had zucchini and green beans coming out of our ears. But our tomatoes have not done so well. Some might look good on the outside, but when you squeeze them just a little, the gross stuff on the inside comes out. They're, they're not healthy, and it's obvious when pressure is applied. This is what's happening in our world right now, and even in our own hearts. Pressure is being applied, and what's inside truly in the heart of man is pouring out. It's pouring out in fear of the virus. And I don't mean being wisely cautious and washing your hands or wearing a mask if that's what you feel like you need to do. What I'm talking about is living in constant fear of everyone and everything about what maybe might possibly could happen. The sinfulness of man is pouring out in demands for changing systems in order to achieve some kind of mythical justice for all. And by changing the system, what they really mean is tearing the whole thing down to the footers and lighting it all on fire. Most, maybe not all, but a clear majority of these calls for justice have nothing to do with real justice or righteousness, but with a false promise of a kind of heaven on earth, a kind of man-made salvation. This has been tried before, it didn't work then, and it won't work now, because salvation belongs to the Lord. 
He has secured it already. It is His because of what Jesus Christ already did. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He did everything right, unlike David and unlike us. And yet His enemies grew in number and surrounded Him. They plotted and schemed to kill Him. Jesus, the Son of God, called out to the Father for deliverance, not from the men who are going to kill him, but from the cup of God's wrath about to be poured out on him. Jesus cried out to God from the cross, and the Father did not deliver him. Jesus drank this cup of wrath against sin to the very bottom. He drained it and slept in the grave dead for three days. Jesus rose again on the third day, for the Lord sustained him, and death could not hold him. He claimed victory over all of sin and death for all of his people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the author of it. He is the initiator of it. He is the procurer of it, and he is the keeper of it. If God were not, if salvation did not belong to the Lord, we would have no hope. No one would be saved. I would not. You would not. But salvation belongs to the Lord, and because this is true, we need not fear. We need not fear anything unless you do not turn from your sin into Christ. If you do not repent and trust in Christ, you have very much to fear. This crazy year will be nothing compared to the eternal scope of wrath of the wrath of God poured out against unrepentant sinners. To be saved from both the wrath of God and fear, you must come to Christ. You must come. And if you come, he has promised to save you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All who come to me, I will have, and I will not cast out. You must come. And for those who do, who turn to Christ, we need not fear a virus. We need not fear rioters. We need not fear insane politicians. If you have repented of your sin and turned to faith, turn in faith through Christ, we have nothing to fear. Why should we? Martin Luther said, A most beautiful conclusion this, and as it were, the sum of all feelings spoken of. The sense is, it is the Lord alone that saves and blesses. And even though the whole mass of all evils should be gathered together in one against man, still it is the Lord who saves. Salvation and blessing are in his hands. What then shall I fear? What shall I not promise myself? When I know that no one can be destroyed, no one reviled without the permission of God, even though all should rise up to curse and destroy, that no one of them can be blessed and saved without the permission of God, how much soever they may bless and strive to save themselves. This is a paraphrase of Romans 8, 30 and 31 and 32, which say, What then can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Salvation belongs to the Lord. May he bless his people. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, nothing teaches us more humility and patient obedience than suffering. We learn obedience to Christ. Even though he is the Son of God, he took on flesh and learned obedience and suffering. 
So when our hearts are troubled, when Satan storms, or when the world is in an uproar against us, when we are sick, what relief it is to know that you see us and that you care. Salvation belongs to you. Let us rest in in that. Let us grow in our faith, in our trust, that we would not fear, but look at what is before us with open eyes and say, I will serve you still. I pray that you would be glorified in our lives this week, that we would grow in grace to the praise of your glorious name. In Jesus' name, amen.